Welcome to the Wake Park Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Wake Park Church in Northeast Minneapolis. We do everything we do because we believe life with Jesus is better. If you like what you hear, we'd love to have you swing by and join us for worship. We meet on Sundays at 10 a.m. and have other groups and ministries on various days of the week. You can learn more by going to wakeparkchurch.org. Our scripture today will be from Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. It's found on page 759 of your pew Bibles, if you want to look there. Um, Again, Acts 17, 16 through 34. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with them, with him. Some of them asked, what, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the times set for them in the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, We want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed them. Believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Well, good morning. Great to see you on this beautiful fall day today. Um, great to see the uh, yacht family here today. <laughs> Uh, That's got to be a record, married on Friday, in church on Sunday. That's amazing. Great to see you guys. What's that? Were you guys? No, they went on honeymoon, right? I don't know. Anyway, we can can sort all that out later. Good job. 
Uh, We are three weeks into a series where we're doing evangelism training, essentially. Uh, Now, the first week, we talked about the importance of remembering what the gospel means to us. Okay, if you've been a believer for a really long time, oftentimes it's very easy to forget why we do what we do. Wait, is that Perry? Wow, I didn't even notice Perry here there either. All right, <laughs> great. Good to see you, Perry. Uh, it, it can be really easy to start to believe that God loves us because we're really good people and forget how much we actually really need the gospel. Until we come to grips with that, that fact, we will probably be more likely to judge people than we are to share the gospel with them. And so what we've been doing is, is we've been going through five thresholds that people today often have to go through in their journey to faith. And and not everyone's path is the same, and these are not sequential, so this is not necessarily a a step-by-step process, but they are just five barriers that people oftentimes have to coming to faith in Jesus. Now, last week, we talked about the first barrier, uh, which uh, we call building trust. You know, you've probably run into people in your lifetime who are skeptical of Christians. Sometimes that's because of the way Christians are portrayed in our society and the media, Uh, but oftentimes that distrust is earned by Christians as well through various scandals in the church or experiences, personal experiences with Christians who didn't act a whole lot like Jesus. And that's why we need to start by always being trustworthy with our friends so that we can have a hearing for the gospel. Well, today we're moving on to the second threshold. And you'll see we have the uh, thresholds listed, I think, up on the screen. And they're in your notes, too, if you're following along there. Uh, but the, the, the second threshold is what we call sparking curiosity. Now, there was a day when... Just about everyone in our society knew about Jesus and knew the basic tenets of Christianity. In fact, even if they didn't go to church, they oftentimes subscribed to somewhat, at least, of a Christian worldview, shared some of the same moral views and all of that. They would have understood things like sin and salvation and redemption and maybe even words like discipleship and sanctification, right? Christianity was in the water, so to speak. But today, we are quickly moving away from that world if we're not already there. See, while a majority of America still says they believe in God and identify as Christians, that number is decreasing, especially among the younger generations. Now, that doesn't mean that it's completely absent, uh, but because for the first time in a very long time, uh, we have a couple of generations of people who were not raised in the church, there will be many more people today who just don't know a lot about Christianity. Now, uh, I've often seen this shift, uh, this threshold, labeled as something like from complacent to curious, but I'm not sure that complacent is the right word for it. That has some some negative connotations. Uh, You might say something like ignorant to curious, but that also has some negative connotations. Also, it's not alliterated, so you probably can't preach it that way. Uh, and, but, but ignorant would maybe be more technically the right word, but actually what we're talking about is just people who have little to no knowledge of Jesus or Christianity, and they're largely okay with that. So how do we minister? How do we share the gospel with people like that? 
You know, when I grew up going to youth conferences and they, were, they would talk about evangelism and, you know, tell us that we needed to, to share Jesus, they would often talk about how all the people who didn't know Jesus lived meaningless lives of desperation. They felt bound by the chains of their meaningless existence. Well, the problem is, is then I met some non-Christians and they actually seemed to be doing fine. You know, they had the normal, ordinary struggles that everyone else has. They were doing their best. You know, they certainly weren't constantly facing an existential crisis. Now, just to be clear, I do believe, like with St. Augustine, that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. I believe that in order to truly flourish as human beings, we need to know our creator. But in our society, we have a lot of ways that we can distract ourselves or numb ourselves from that feeling of emptiness or those uh, inevitable existential questions that we have in life. We can amuse ourselves or entertain ourselves. We can use drugs or alcohol or sex, money or success, or sometimes it's even success of our children. And, uh, and that can tide us over for a while. And, and so we avoid those questions through some of these things that our society provides to us. And they work, at least mostly, and at least for a time. So, the chances are, your non-Christian friends are not walking around every day in existential crisis. There will be times, there will be things that happen. And every once in a while, you will see that, that they really know that they need something, even if they don't know that it's Jesus. But mostly they're just going about their lives doing the best they can, unaware of Jesus, or even if they do know about him, oftentimes he's just one of many different choices to find purpose in life. If he works for you, great, but he's not really for me. Well, actually, the situation that we're in today is pretty similar to what the Apostle Paul experienced in Acts chapter 17. See, Paul was on one of his missionary journeys around the Roman Empire, and he'd been preaching around the cities in the, in the area of, the, uh, of Greece. And, uh, and while some people became believers, he wasn't always received very well in cities there. For instance, a little bit earlier, he went to Thessalonica and went to Berea, and the people in Thessalonica didn't like him, so they ran him out of town. And then they followed him to, to Berea, and actually the people from Thessalonica ran him out of Berea, too. But he found that his, uh, his partners, uh, Silas, uh, was, uh, uh, who was it? Silas and Timothy, were able to stick around in Berea, but he thought, well, I better get out of here. I'm going to be uh, in big trouble. And so he went on ahead of them to Athens, and he was going to wait for them to come. Now, most of us would probably use our time in Athens as an opportunity to get a little R&R, maybe do a little tourism, but not Paul. Because Paul... For him, witnessing was not a job, it wasn't an obligation, it was just who he was. It just flowed from his very center. And so everything that he saw and did was filtered through the lens of being a witness. Look at what Luke writes in verse 16. He says, when Paul was waiting in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he observed that the city was full of idols, right? So here's what's happening. Paul is wandering around the city, taking in the scenery, and Luke says his spirit was provoked within him. Now, this is a fancy way of saying it was making him angry, okay? He was, he was starting to get mad about this. And so what did he do? Well, he didn't go around knocking over statues and spray painting temples, right? Uh, he was angry, but he kept it under control, 
And he did what he always does when he went into a city. First, he went to the synagogue, and then he started to go around and started to share the gospel with people all around the city. Now, uh, what is significant about this is that he would find at least first some common cause with the, with the Jews in the synagogue. And, uh, you know, they would also reject idols. Uh, now, it doesn't tell us the substance of these conversations necessarily, but I'm sure that there were probably two main topics that Paul was talking about with them. First, he was probably saying, hey, what are you guys doing about all these idols in your city? And number two, he was probably, not probably, he was telling them about Jesus as the fulfillment of their Jewish scriptures. Okay, those would be the two things that he would say, I can imagine. Okay, but verse 17 tells us that he didn't just stay in the synagogue, but he was also having conversations in the marketplace. Uh, He was just having conversations about Jesus everywhere he went. Now, keep in mind, he was still disturbed. He was disturbed about the idols. And yet, rather than doing angry things, he channeled the, what he felt into productive conversation. Now, here's where Athens in Paul's day is pretty similar to our day. See, in Athens, very few, if any, people had heard of Jesus. They probably would have been familiar with Judaism, so there was maybe a little bit of background there. Some of them maybe knew a little bit about the Hebrew scriptures. But overall, they just didn't know. And so when Paul started to talk about Jesus in the marketplace, he started to pique their curiosity. This is something new. And look at their response. It wasn't entirely positive. It wasn't entirely negative. Right? Look at verse 18. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Okay, now, at this point, Paul seems to have left the synagogue behind, and, uh, but the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, who were Greeks, were always game to kick around some ideas. In fact, they were so interested that they brought him to the Areopagus, which was kind of like the major leagues of philosophical and theological debate in the time. They were like, we need to have you guys talk to the big dogs. And so, Paul was so effective... And he stood out so much that it seems like the entire city was curious to hear what he had to say. Right now, we're going to get into the message, into the sort of the content of what he's saying in just a minute. But before we get into the passage, I want to show you kind of what happens here at the end, how how things turn out. Look at what it says in verse 32. This This is the response that the Apostle Paul got. He said, some of them sneered, so there's a negative reaction, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. Okay? They were non-committal, but interested. And then, uh, and then Paul left the council, and some people became followers of Paul, and they believed in Jesus. And so we have a variety of different responses. Okay? So what we're about to see is Paul, what Paul does is uh, does evangelism in an environment where people don't know Christian, Christianity, don't know the Christian message, don't have necessarily any compelling interest in it. What, what we find is, is that Paul, even though he was really good at this, I think this is like a model for us to be able to engage in a society like that. There were still a variety of responses. Some people thought it was ridiculous. Some people weren't necessarily convinced, but they wanted to hear more. And others believed. 
And if this is the response that Paul got, I think it's probably fair to say this is the response that we will probably get as well. And we need to be okay with that, right? So what is Paul's model for sparking curiosity in people who have never heard before? Well, the first thing is Paul is present, right? This is a pretty good step, isn't it, right? He goes there. He starts to talk to people. He's with them. He has conversations with them. Even in his anger, it would have been really easy for him to have one of the knee-jerk reactions that we talked about last week, either getting defensive or avoiding them or judging them, but he doesn't. He engages with them. He's present with them, right? Now, for many of us, This is where our problem with evangelism begins. You know, we've been Christians for so long uh, and so engaged in church life that we have almost no relationship with people outside of the church. Now, you think that I'm uh, all about the church, uh, probably even more than you. I think being engaged in church life is maybe not, maybe has never been more important than any other time in our lifetime. Okay, because we live in a society that doesn't reinforce Christian values or the Christian message, if it ever did. Okay, but, uh, but we live in a society that doesn't promote it, and so we have to be engaged in Christian community for the sake of our own spiritual growth. But at the same time, it's also true that it may never have been more important that we are actually actively present in the lives of people outside the church as well. So you might say, well, how is that even possible? How can you spend more time in the church and more time with unbelievers? We have this catch-22. If you spend too much time in the world and not enough time in the church, then you risk being colonized by the world. If you spend too much time in the church, then you have no witness in the world. There's only so much time in a day. Well, our board and staff, uh, we've been talking uh, about how our church might gauge our effectiveness, not so much by programs, that we offer, but more by practices that we maintain, both individually and together? What if our goal was less about getting people to church activities and more about just living the way Jesus taught us to live? Kind of a crazy idea, isn't it? Now, of course, you know, programs like worship service and kids ministry and youth ministry and all of that, they'll always be useful, always be useful things. But more important is the question is, what are the everyday practices that we as a congregation need to share that can keep us growing in our faith, but at the same time will push us out toward the world so that we can be witnesses to the people around us? Now, the goal is not to keep us busy with church activities, but to be a family that is faithful to living the way of Jesus and joining him in his mission. Okay, to be faithful that, to that mission, we have to be present with unbelievers. All right, so first thing that Paul did was he was just present. He was there. He engaged with them. Second, we see that Paul himself is curious. When I read uh, the opening line of this passage about Paul in Athens, about, you know, walking around in the city of Athens, I can kind of visualize him walking around slowly, you know, probably with his hands behind his back or, you know, maybe scratching his chin a little bit or something like that. And he's reading the inscriptions on the statues and and learning more. Now, he was an educated man, and so he already knew quite a bit about Greek religion and, and the society that he was in, but he was not afraid of learning. A little bit later during the conversation at the Areopagus, he was actually able to quote their own poets 
and philosophers back to them. He had a a deep knowledge of Greek culture, a deep knowledge of what all of these philosophers and theologians were thinking. I read a, a blog post this week that described evangelicals as people who don't have questions. Now, what they meant is, is that evangelicals really like certainty. We like to be told in no uncertain terms what the Bible says and to believe that it's true. And then our job is just to believe it plain and simple. We like authority and all of that. Okay? Now, we can debate about whether that's an accurate characterization. I have a tendency to think that that's a pretty broad brush to, to paint people with. But I've certainly known people for whom that's true. They're just not very interested in going deeper. They're not really very interested in examining their own faith or even learning about uh, society as well. A few years ago, I preached a series called Where's the Good News? Which was essentially a series uh, about the various gospels that our society tries to impose on us. And so I talked about things like the gospel of self, the the gospel of science and technology, the gospel according to Hugh Hefner, the prosperity gospel, And I got some feedback from someone who said, I don't want to hear about all that stuff. I just want to hear the gospel. And I understand what they're saying. But for the sake of evangelism, I think it's critical that we are curious about our society, about what makes our society tick. And and we should do it not just so we could criticize what's going on in our society, but we also believe in something called common grace, or uh, sometimes it's known as natural revelation, where we believe that there is actually truth that can be found outside of Scripture because God has made truth plain to people, made it available to people. And so we should be curious about our neighbors. What do they believe? What motivates them? What do they assume about God and about life? You see, when we are active in sharing the gospel, our first uh, posture should always be to start with questions before we give answers. Make sure that you understand where someone is coming from before you inundate them with answers to questions that they're not even asking. There'll be time for you to share, but curiosity on your part will breed curiosity on their part. So, be curious yourself. Third, Paul affirms what he can affirm. Now, keep in mind, Paul is still upset about idols here. Okay? These are idol worshipers, plain and simple. And yet, Paul actually sees their spiritual impulse as a good thing. In fact, he uses it to find common ground with them. And you see this here. He does this brilliantly in verse 22. This is what he says. I see that you are very religious in every respect. Now, in our day, that probably would not be a compliment. But in Paul's day, it very much was a compliment. He's finding common ground. It's meant to affirm them. He's saying, I love your spiritual impulse. I love that about you. But he even takes it further. He says, for I was passing through and observing carefully your objects of worship. I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. In other words, they are so dedicated that they want to make sure that they don't inadvertently neglect any God. That's how religious they are. Maybe fearful, I don't know. And he doesn't question their motives. He just assumes that they are just as sincere as he is in his faith. Okay? This is, uh, I think, why sometimes we misunderstand human depravity. Now, we believe in human depravity. But oftentimes we see sin only as rebellion. 
that, that people are against God. They know what, that they're doing wrong and they do it anyway. And, and certainly there are people like that. In fact, probably all of us at one time or another do that as well. We know that we're sinning. We do it anyway. But sometimes sin is simply missing the mark. That's what the, the Greek word hamartia means. It's almost like a mistake. Sometimes it's weakness and frailty. You see, human depravity doesn't mean that we're corrupted completely beyond repair. It means that there is no part of our being that is not touched in some way by sin. We are weak and compromised. We lack wisdom. Sometimes we allow ourselves to come under the principalities and powers of this dark world or the influence of Satan. And that influence is so strong in this world that sometimes even when we think we're doing right, we're actually doing wrong. And that's why we need Jesus. We need Jesus to break the power of sin and to set us free and to set us on the right path. The, the parenting organization that we sometimes work with, Connected Families, does something that I think is really brilliant. And they kind of bring this point out uh, when it comes to kids. They talk about finding the gift in the misbehavior. In other words, when a child misbehaves, it's often a, a, a disordered or sinful expression of a gift that they actually have. It's a corrupted expression of a gift that they have. If a child likes to argue, it may be that eventually that gift, if it's channeled right, they can become a lawyer or something like that, right? If they're continually saying it's not fair, okay, that's selfishness. But also, if you challenge it right, it may be that they just have a great desire for justice, And it's expressed in selfish and sinful ways. But if you redirect it, then you can say, oh, I see that impulse that you have. But let's redirect that toward good aims. Okay, behind the surface of that sin is actually a good impulse. And Paul knows that. So even though he can't affirm their idolatry, he's able to affirm the impulse behind it. Okay, what impulse can you affirm in people even if it's expressed in sinful ways. Finally, Paul intrigues them. Okay? What he does is he sparks their curiosity even more, and he does it actually by challenging them. He's not just agreeing with them all the time. He's actually starting to go into it. He sparks their curiosity. Again, he's, he's brilliant in the way that he redirects their impulse. Right? He, he points out that they have this statue, statue to the unknown God. He affirms their spiritual impulse, and then look at what he does in verse 23. He says, therefore, what you worship without knowing it, this I proclaim to you. Right? Now, this is pretty provocative. It's pretty bold. Maybe they would look at it and say, well, that's a little arrogant. Right? You think that you know something that I don't. Now, I don't know what Paul actually thought about who that unknown God is. Probably right. But if, did he really think it, they were worshiping the God of the Bible? Maybe. But you have to admit that it was a great way to get them thinking. And I can hear them say, okay, you've got our attention. Let's hear what you have to say. And then he takes the opportunity to introduce them to the true God. Now, you might not think that you're that clever, right? You, look, you go there and, go and say, man, if I was in that situation, I never would have thought of that before. How many of you, how many of you are like that? When I'm, I'm sharing like, oh man, I just can't turn those things like that. But in your conversations with your non-Christian friends, I think maybe just think about two things. Number one, what is it in them that I can affirm And how can I redirect it toward Jesus? What can I affirm? And how can I redirect it toward Jesus? And the goal is for them to think, okay, you have my attention. 
I'm interested in what you have to say. Okay, so what are some ways that you can do that? Well, let me, let me talk about three ways that you can build that kind of curiosity. You can start by doing it with words. I mean, maybe this isn't the first thing, but I think it's really important that, uh, that, we, that we talk about words, right? Uh, it might be through a thought-provoking question that gets them to think more deeply about their own assumptions. Uh, maybe talking about an interesting TV show or podcast or current event that brings up an ethical question. You know, and then just ask them their opinion, okay? Don't set yourself up to be the one with the answers right away, but see what they think about life. And then be ready to offer your answers when you listen to them fully. But it's very important that when you share, that you don't leave your sharing at sort of generic God, right? And this is one of the reasons, I think, why many of us don't get further when it comes to evangelism, okay? If you follow Jesus, you don't believe in generic God, okay? You believe in a particular God. You believe in the God of the Bible who, is, who has shown himself in the person of Jesus and interacts with humanity in a particular way. And that God is different than the generic God in our prevailing culture who never invites us to change or make any kind of commitment. Okay, your willingness to remember that you believe in the God of the Bible and talk about that God will actually make people curious. I mean, they may sneer. They may be intrigued and say, let me hear more. Or they may be convinced, right? So, sparking curiosity can happen with your words, but it can also happen in other ways. Another great way to spark curiosity is through uncommon acts of mercy. This is actually one that we talked about last week, but I think it's really important in our day. As followers of Jesus, we are called to a radical way of life. Jesus taught his disciples that their love and mercy ought to go beyond the prevailing norms. Okay, for instance where he taught in Matthew chapter 5, you know, most people love their neighbor and hate their enemies, but I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, or one of them, I think Luke says, do good to those who persecute you. Or if you go to, the, uh, to 1 Peter, the apostle Peter tells Christians, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us, Right? It's saying, yes, you know, everyone loves their family, everyone loves their friends, but when Christians go beyond that, people take notice. You see, doing what everyone else does is nothing special. But when we become peacemakers in a divided society, when we're willing to give ourselves for the sake of others, even those outside of our tribe, when we respond with blessings for curses, people start to become curious about that. So, uncommon acts of mercy. Another way to live curiously, along with uncommon acts of mercy, is also to live with uncommon character. You know, today, many Christians stand out, but not necessarily in a good way. They're the squeaky wheel that's always clamoring for their rights. Uh, they demand holiness from society, but are angry and belligerent in how they do it. They're known more uh, for what they're against than what they're for. They stand out, but in a way that repels rather than draws people to Jesus. But of course, then you have some Christians who see this and then they overcorrect. You know, for years, the primary strategy of evangelism among evangelicals was what we call relevance. And what that meant was that as much as possible, Christians ought to show the world that we are just like you, only we believe in Jesus. 
And then we could invite our friends to our perfectly normal church and they could come and feel perfectly normal. And here, a perfectly average, everyday, normal Jesus who just wants us to be nice. Now, there is a way in which we are just like everyone else. For instance, we are all sinners saved by grace. We're not different in that respect. We wear the same clothes, we speak the same language, we exist in the same culture. So there are a lot of things about us that are the same about people outside the world. And yet, there are some very important ways that we are called to be different. We already mentioned maybe the most important way. We should be much more merciful, much more loving than the society around us. But in Scripture, we're also called to pursue a different kind of life. Back in the day, we used to call it holiness. So for instance, we read things like this in Ephesians chapter 5. Be imitators of God, therefore, as beloved children, and walk in love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant and sacrificial offering to God. Okay, so he's getting the the love component in there. That's the most important part of holiness. But then he goes on. He says, but among you, as is proper among the saints, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or greed, nor should there be any obscenity, foolish talk, or crude joking, which are out of character, but rather thanksgiving. And there are all kinds of lists like that in Scripture. Just read through the the Old Testament and the New Testament, and you'll find lists like that all over the place. Okay, And we shouldn't avoid those, because that's part of what it means to be distinct in our society. You know, when we say that we are followers of Jesus, then our lives should look like Jesus. And so the question is, when people look at our lives, do they see love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You see, we don't ultimately spark curiosity in others by fitting in. We spark curiosity by standing out. And not in an obnoxious or self-righteous way, not in a way that looks down on other people or pretends that we're perfect, but in a humble way that comes from a heart of gratitude to God for accepting us as imperfect as we are. And so we live lives that are self-disciplined because we recognize how easy it is for us to fall into temptation. We are kind because in our sin, God was kind to us. We are gentle because we know that we ourselves are fragile. And so we live with a different kind of character. Well, I want to end today by coming back to something that I mentioned earlier that I think is, is critically important. I suspect that most people, most Christians, won't have a big problem with the last two things that that we talked about, showing uncommon mercy and uncommon character. But oftentimes where we go wrong is that we never take it beyond that. You know, we we really like the saying that's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, preach the gospel at all times, if necessary, use words. You know that phrase, right? Well, there are a couple of problems with it. First of all, there's no evidence that he ever said such a thing. The second problem is, is that at some point you will need to use your words. And the question that we're trying to answer today is, is that when you use your words to share the gospel with people, how likely is it that people are going to listen to you? How much are they going to think that you actually have something to contribute? Now, of course, you can't control how people respond. You can do everything right, just like the Apostle Paul did, and still be rejected. But when we want to plant the seed of the gospel, we need to be intentional 
about how we prepare the soil. And so let me end today with some questions for you. Just to reflect on, they're in your notes on the back page. Number one, do you cultivate a curious spirit in yourself that is constantly learning about God, about others, about how to live out your faith? Do you have a curious spirit yourself? Number two, are you willing to be present with non-believers and know them well enough that there is something in them that you can affirm? Three, do you live in a way that stands out because it's so attractive that the people around you can't help but stand up and take notice? And finally, will you take it beyond action to to words? Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your gracious gift of salvation and forgiveness. And God, I pray today that as we continue on this journey and we have people that we're praying for and are are preparing to share with them, God, I, I pray that you would give us wisdom for how we can stand out in a way that is so attractive but so different that people will notice. God, I pray that you would give us a heart for lost people, that you would give us a heart for the people who don't really even know it, but are struggling. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be sensitive, to be able to to see when people are going through those times when they're receptive to the gospel, and that we, we would be willing to be present there and to speak words of healing and forgiveness, speak the words of the gospel to the people around us. Motivate us to to do so. And then as we are speaking, I pray that your Holy Spirit would guide the words that we say as you promised that you would. God, I thank you again for the grace that you've given us and I pray that any sharing that we do would not be out of a sense of self-righteousness or any sense that we think that we deserve what what you've given us, but out of a spirit of gratitude and knowing that you are a gracious God who has been kind to us. God, may we express that same kindness. May you work through us to the people around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. You've been listening to the Wake Park Church Sermon Podcast from Wake Park Church in Northeast Minneapolis. We hope this week's sermon helped you learn to know and love Jesus more, and serve Him in your unique place in the world. If you have feedback or questions, get in touch with us by emailing podcast at wakeparkchurch.org.